You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, thank you for tuning in to our latest Trowers Talks podcast. My name is Scott Dorling, and I'm a partner of the firm. This podcast is part of a series that we are running with a specific focus on local government. We wanted to run this series because we wanted to celebrate the extraordinary performance that local government has put in to help deal with the impacts of coronavirus in their communities. I'm therefore delighted that Peter Fleming, the leader of Seven Oaks District Council, has agreed to join us for this session. Welcome along, Peter. Hi, Scott. And Peter has been a district councillor since 1999 and has led Seven Oaks for over 10 years. As an authority, Seven Oaks District Council has been nationally recognised as leading the way in providing value for money and good use of resources. And in addition to being the leader of Seven Oaks Council, Peter is also a member of the LGA Leadership Board and is the chair of the LGA's Improvement and Innovation Board and is also on the executive of the District Council's network. So given that Peter has no spare time at all, it's great that he has given us a little bit of his time today to share his thoughts with us. So because of Peter's background and expertise, we wanted to focus the discussion today on innovation. So let me start, Peter, with a, a question that looks a little bit back. So Seven Oaks was the first district council to become financially self-sufficient, which is a fantastic achievement. And this was derived in large part by astute and meaningful property investment. So I've got two questions for you. How has that self-sufficiency helped the council during the pandemic? And as a large property owner yourself, as a council, how do you balance the need for revenue returns with the desire to help your local businesses to get back up and running after the pandemic? I mean, those those are cracking questions. I mean, the the, the reality is that that it's it's a um, it, it's not been a quick fix. So we actually go back ten years uh, to the point in time where we realised that we were on a downward slope in terms of government funding. When I first became a councillor in, in 1999, about half our funding came from central government and net revenue spend at that time was around £16 million. So 20 years later, we get no direct government funding and our net revenue spends about £14 million. So that gives you an idea of the scale of change in, in district local government in terms of uh, in terms of those finances over those sort of intervening uh, 20 years. But yeah, so 10 years ago, took a, took a, 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 a really hard look at how we were all organised financially, what we were doing, uh, what services uh, residents really wanted us to do rather than ones that we wanted to do ourselves. And I guess the, the single biggest innovation and the one that I talk about probably more than anything, and possibly the thing that's helped us through this current crisis more than anything else, has been a rolling 10-year budget. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's no magic. Uh, you can go find it on our, uh, on our website. It's in, our, it's in all of our financial papers. It's in our budget. Uh, and in fact, uh, last year's budget papers um, are super interesting because they look back over that 10-year period. Uh, and yeah, so we just roll it. We roll it forward every year. We make some assumptions. But what it allows us to do is it means that we never make, you know, a, a, a real um, off the cuff decision. We don't we don't if a problem comes, we don't have to find a solution within that medium term financial plan window. We can spread the problem out over 
over a longer period. So that's really helped us. And and um, beneath that, there's a in fact a 20-year rolling plan, which is even more sketched out. But again, gives us a framework to work within. And then on the property side, so yeah, we had to fill that gap left by uh, no government direct government funding. Um, and we couldn't put it all on the good council taxpayers of, of, of the Seven Oaks district. So yeah, we looked at we looked at property, but property with a purpose. I think you know all of our investments uh, in some way uh, look at, uh, at more than just giving us a return. I, I was I was really amused about four years into our uh, our um, property building our small property empire. I was sat next to another council leader who turned to me and said, you know, we've just started down the journey of, of property investment. Nothing like the scale of Seven Oaks. I went, all right, you know, that's that's brilliant. I, I also, you know, cheekily said, have you done all of the hard yards uh, before you started down that thing? So we we took out a third of our uh, our revenue spend in 2010-11, which gave us that foundation. But um, anyway, he looked at me a bit perplexed at that. But anyway, he said, yeah, no, no, nothing like the scale of Seven Oaks. I said, all right, so so how much have you spent? He said, a hundred million pounds. <laughs> I went, we've spent 20. At the time, we'd spent 20 million pounds. And, and, and even now, which is about two years later, we've spent, I think, 25 million pounds. You know, we are not, we are not massive spenders in this space. I think we I think you described it that we we um we 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 have meaningful property yes. investment. Yeah, we don't we don't rush into things. We have a very blended portfolio. Uh, we've done some really interesting stuff, which hasn't just been about property investment. It's been about you know building um, car parks, building a, a a Premier Inn for Premier Inn. Um, we've built uh, a long stay car park in our main town in Seven Oaks. Uh, for uh, people that work in the town. Um, and we've paid for that by building 10 million pound plus townhouses to help fund that 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 building. So it's not just about return, it's about how we fund some of those capital projects that councils uh, want to do to, to, to help their local economy or, or help communities. So yeah, we, we, we've used property i would say i think meaningful is a really interesting word in a meaningful way but actually in a in a pretty directed way with with you know a real idea of what we're trying to do uh, with that property that's not to say that we don't have a, a wing of the council so we have a wholly owned company that just does property investment and, uh, and they again they haven't spent a lot of money but they are allowed to spend out of the district and they have a real blended uh, portfolio as well well, that's really interesting, um, Peter. And I'm particularly interested by the discussion you had with another uh, council about learn, what they what they could learn from you in terms of their property investment. I think that that leads on nicely to your role within the LGA, and in particular, I think the sector-led improvement program that the LGA has uh, developed. And I think that's been a really uh, great success. Um, and I think that that's a no, a no short part sort of helped by, you know, the, the Improvement and Innovation Board, which you, you chair. And, and, and that, the old, that, that sector-led improvement program, I think, has in large part come out of the need for local authorities to, to learn from each other, particularly in the, in, the, in the area of no direct government funding. And 
and how to provide services in, in, the, in the new world. But what role do you think that sector-led improvement could have in helping local government in the pandemic recovery process? And what steps or processes are you hoping to put in place in the LGA to help authorities generally in their recovery plans? Yeah, so so again, you know, we've, we've been on a massive journey. I, I, I mean, I don't look old enough, but I, I, I was around in the days of Eric Pickles, uh, the Audit Commission. I played a very, very minor role in, in, uh, in uh, scrapping uh, the Audit Commission, getting rid of, you know, that top down, hugely burdensome, massively expensive, a draining process on local government, which which was really not about improvement it was all about you know a tick box exercise and in itself it became an industry you know it was a huge industry yeah. um costed costing the sector i mean I, I used to quote a two billion pound cost um but actually i'm told it was closer to five billion pounds uh you know frankly we couldn't go back to that anyway anymore there, there is just not that money in the system to allow for a system like that so sector-led improvement was born out of that there was a real strong belief that actually there was a better way to drive improvement across the sector. And I think that's been proven. Um, we're going through a, a review at the moment. We review sector-led improvement probably on about a three-year cycle. Look at what we're doing, check that we're doing the right things, check that actually it's working for the sector. We're looking at the right things. Uh, we're helping them where it is. And actually, sector-led improvement, a lot of it is, is uh, people's focus is on uh, the peer challenges that we do, but actually sector-led improvement trains about a thousand councillors a year at various levels, um, you know, putting them through quite rigorous training uh, to, to, to really help them in their roles. Uh, it's our national graduate training program, you know, 5,000 people applying to go through that process. You know, it's hugely uh, difficult to get onto that program, but also, you know, productivity support, finance, workforce support, all of those sorts of things are wrapped up in that sector-led improvement. And the LGA have been incredibly fast at pivoting their offer over this pandemic. Uh, I think within two weeks, they had um, put out an incredibly good handbook for uh, local councillors about how they can, can help their communities during the pandemic. And then coming out of, uh, you know, whilst we're in the first stages of recovery, they've updated that. Clearly, we can't do the peer challenges where we physically go to other councils at the moment. But we have nearly 30 councils signed up to a, a new offer that we've put together, which is around recovery, where we'll get senior officers and members from different authorities round a table to support a council who asks for it on their road to recovery. And we'll have a number of virtual meetings with them talking through what their plans are and sharing our thoughts and plans ourselves. So, you know, it's really exciting. It's really dynamic space to be in at the moment. And whilst, you know, there are huge uncertainties for local government, there is also a huge optimism and an opportunity to make some real changes across the sector. I mean, in my own in my own area, we had some plans for town centre regeneration. In fact, now that's even more important. We need to give the private sector the confidence that we're still in that space. And, and so I'm really excited about that. And then the way that we're working, I guess you're the same. You've seen you know, huge changes in the way that you go about your work, 
I'm in an organization that has around 200 people in the office normally. Uh, we, we're now topping out at about 50 a day uh, with the rest working from home. And during the crisis, you know, 90% of my staff were working from home. So, you know, fundamental changes, which I think will be cemented into new ways of working going forward. So, yeah, no, look, loads of opportunities, but loads of challenges ahead as well. So I completely agree with you about the um, the challenges, but yeah, we're, we're not making enough, I think, of the opportunities that the, that the, the, the pandemic has created in terms of the way in which we could work better in the future and i think you know we can talk we could talk for ages about different ways of working but i just i was just struck by your comment about the lga assistance in in the in the, the recovery assistance it's going to be provided to to local authorities given that we we um you know we need we all need help to get the, the best uh, outcome so just in terms of that recovery do you think there are some key things that every local authority should think about or should consider when they're looking at their recovery plans in their own areas. And I know you've mentioned already about things like your town centre regeneration, making sure there's confidence in the, in the, in the market that the local authority is there to, to continue to do business. But are there some key things that, that each local authority should be thinking about? Yeah, I think, I think what, and I, I'm, I'm yet to find a local authority where there hasn't been a fundamental change in, in terms of community and uh, how the community has responded, where you know the local local authorities have not necessarily been um, leading, but they have been convening. You know, holding the ring. Um, you know, bringing lots of disparate groups together. In my own authority area, we have fifteen hundred people that came forward, and they're still there. You know, fifteen weeks later, fourteen weeks later, uh, doing things uh, as diverse as you know, doing shopping for people, but also you know, phoning people up who are perhaps quite isolated. Lots of that work will continue. You know, I think one of the one of the potential benefits of people not having to commute perhaps as much as they do, and particularly in an area like Seven Oaks, where you know most people used to get on a train really early in the morning and go to London, and then get on a train and come home really late at night. You know, actually gaining back a couple of hours a day. I think people are looking at you know what meaningful things they can do with those that extra time and that extra space. And some of that will be about family, uh, but some of it will be about community. And I think councils have got a role in, in making sure that, that, you know, that those opportunities are out there for them. I think in terms of the sort of more hard-nosed things, I think we need to look at you know, our finances. We need to look at, you know, make sure that we're on a, on, a, on a robust financial footing, which is really tough. You know, we, we, we have seen some money coming to the sector with the promise of some more. But, you know, the reality is that there are, you know, there are massive costs, but also masses of lost income for councils. Uh, and I don't think that recovery will be quick. You know, we, we are looking at things like, you know, people's ability to pay council tax, business rates going forward. Um, I think they'll, that the, the impact of this, and of course, we don't know when this will end and whether, you know, we'll go through a series of these before we get to a point where it's it's properly stabilised. The impact on this for local government is huge. So I think new ways of working, you know, new opportunities. Some of the things that we were looking at as a council, um, some of the things that I was really keen on that we do, which 
Um, I mean, this is no disrespect to officers, but they weren't perhaps full uh, foot down on the pedal on were things such as, you know, I was looking at how do we build a more flexible workforce? How do we, you know, amongst the processes of the things that we do, we still have people doing processes in individual teams. Would it not be better if an individual had more than one skill? And actually what we found over the pandemic uh, was that we were easily moving people from team to team. Um, so I think that will that'll pick up a pace. Um, we've been virtually working 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. So again, you know, actually that works probably better for our customers, the ability to contact us outside uh, those normal nine to five hours. So we're thinking about what that looks like. Um, and also, you know, in terms of the workforce, how many more opportunities does that give to people if they can work, you know, uh, either condensed hours or, you know, an early or a later shift. Um, so, you know, some real opportunities. So I'm, I'm working with my team here to look at, you know, what, what does the workforce look like going forward in terms of that changing model and, and, and how do we not lose some of the things that we picked up during the pandemic, stuff that, uh, that we've been trying to do for ages. And I'm, I'm, I'm sat in the office now and I'm just, I'm just looking at the piles and piles of paper that are being thrown out. And we've been on like this sort of paperless journey for ages, but of course, um, pandemics are, uh, meant that people are coming in and clearing desks and clearing storage, which is, which is fantastic. Uh, another uh, opportunity not to be missed. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, we've, we've been trying to move towards a paperless office for, for years and lawyers are very, very bad at, um, at working and doing everything online. And, and I, yeah, I, for one, love having a large document to, to mark up. But, and I thought that I, paper was an, an inevitable part of my job, but not, having, not being in the office and, and not having a very good printer at home has meant that yeah, I've moved to paperless office in a way that I never thought I would. So I think you're absolutely right. The, the pandemic has created opportunities for different and better ways of working and yeah, different and better ways of innovating um, around, around different things. And I was, I was struck by the, was able to develop this, um, its self-sufficiency very early on, was looking, looking at a, a, a paper that was produced um, not so long ago, was, was credited to the council's, the council creating a culture amongst its officers where they felt free to innovate and they felt free to take risk and not just risk for risk's sake but appropriate risk and I wonder Peter if there's if there's any lessons for other authorities in in the way in which you were able to create that culture of innovation uh, and risk-taking and, and and how other authorities might be able to use that going forward in, in post-COVID world. So, so I mean, I, I could do a whole podcast on risk and my attitude to risk. So, you know, shut me up. Um, I'm a real believer if, you know, if you're in an organisation and, and particularly if you inhabit a senior role in an organisation, you need to understand two things when it comes to risk. The first is you need to fully understand your own attitude to risk. And, you know, you might think, oh, you know, I'm a, but you need to really, you know, I'm not a massively introspective person, um, but you do need to understand, you know, where you sit on that risk continuum. You know, are you a, are you a massive risk taker? What, what are the things that uh, make you comfortable with risk? What are the things? I, I, I remember a story. I was at, um, 
I was at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. This is many, many years ago. And um, I, I hate roller coasters. I'm a, I, I'm just, just not my thing. And I was speaking to one of the guys that was working there. And it's the, last week we had um, the Red Arrows came. And um, none of them would get on Pepsi Max, the big one. So it was at, at the time, it was Europe's biggest uh, roller coaster. And I said, that's phenomenal. You know, these are guys that you know, throw the planes around and everything. He said, yeah. They don't like anything where they're not in control. And I thought that was really, really interesting when it comes to a perceived risk taker, but somebody that manages risk in a way that actually they can, uh, they will take risks that they're in control of, or they'll take risks when they're surrounded by people who they absolutely trust. And the second bit of it is to understand the risk appetite of your organization. And that's not the individuals within your organization, but the organization as a whole. And I think we came, we went on an enormous organizational journey in terms of risk. And the thing that really changed it was when I, when I stood up and said to officers and members, we have now got to the point where the risk of doing nothing is greater than the risk of doing something that you feel uncomfortable with and yeah. actually that was the first big step on our journey because actually what was happening was the money was going to run out and um if we didn't if we didn't change our attitude to risk um and this was all post you know post iceland and you know uh, if anything we'd become more small c conservative our risk appetite was probably lower but actually, when you when you showed the organization the options, they were more willing to do it. But I also make sure that I don't surround myself with people who are like me. Uh, because that's, that's because not that would be, well, no, well, I, well uh, yeah, it'd be a bloody disaster. <laughs> um, I often say I wouldn't work for myself. If I offered me a job, I'm not sure I would work for me. But uh, fortunately, there are some people that will work with me. Um, and so uh, that's the journey we've been on. But, but it's about you must understand, first of all, where you are on that route. Because otherwise, you will, you will do one of two things. You will either drag the organization back as a senior leader uh, if you don't understand, uh, if you're particularly risk averse and don't really understand that. Or you will do the other thing, which is you will put the organization in real peril due to your due to your 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 sort of gung-ho attitude unless you surround yourself with people that can can temper that out. um and and so yeah so i mean we can all point at people all around the world you know uh, certain people in certain organizations such as you know elon musk is the i guess the the greatest example of of does that person as an individual at the head of an organization have they taken that organization with them? Have they taken the shareholders with them? You know, how long can that relationship go on? You know, there's probably no greater innovator in the world at the moment. But actually, if he doesn't take the shareholders and the organization with him, they'll probably get rid of him. And actually, the whole company will be worse for that. So they've got to find a way of, of working with that level of risk and risk taking. Yeah. Well, I didn't think that we'd end up talking about Elon Musk in this uh, podcast, Peter, but 
you, 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 who knows who knows where you end up when we start a conversation with you. Um, I'm going to ask you one one final question, Peter. And we're going to ask all of the panelists who are talking on this this local government series the same question. So, can I just ask you what are you most proud of in local government's response to the pandemic? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'm not breaking any confidences because there were I think 380 people on the call. In the first, I think the first week or 10 days of the crisis, we were all on a call. Secretary of State was on the call and, and the basic narrative was, don't worry, uh, you know, government has got this. We've spoken to the supermarkets, we've spoken to, you know, we have got this. Within probably four days, it was, we really haven't got this and you, you, you guys need to really step up. Fortunately, local government hadn't really believed the first statement and had started to put in place things because actually we know our communities best and i'm incredibly proud of local government um you know the 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 fact that we are feeding you know tens hundreds of thousands of people we supporting probably millions of people through this crisis um and yeah absolutely look the nhs gets the headlines and and you know that's absolutely right but i tell you what local government has done during this crisis somebody one day will write you know a book about you know the level of engagement the amount of work that they did in a short period of time the complete pivoting of you know a part of the public sector that doesn't often get much of a light shone upon it but you know really that's i guess the the thing that i'm most proud of local government's response to the crisis particularly after they were told, don't worry, you can stand yeah. down. That's great. I couldn't agree more, Peter. As, as, a, as a firm, we often say that we are proud to work for local government. Uh, and hearing from you today about what you've done, what the local government sector has done, has made that statement yeah, truer than it ever has been before. So thank you so much, Peter, for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.